I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. We're so excited to be back after our holiday break. And we've brought back uh, two people for this episode of the Anti-Dystopians who you've heard before, and we're so excited to have them on again. So we have Kira Jasper, who's coming live from North Carolina. Hi, Kira. Hi, thanks for having me back. And then we have Malika Balakrishnan, who's uh, down the road from me in Cambridge. Hi, Malika. Hey, long time no see. (laughs) I know. One episode ago. So today we there's since we last spoke, a lot of things have happened uh, in the world and in tech. People aren't really quite sure what to call it. An attempted coup, a storming of the Capitol building. Um, this triggered um, a widespread backlash on behalf on on the part of the tech industry. So we had Twitter uh, infamously has banned Donald Trump from tweeting. He's been followed by a number of other tech corporations. I have actually here all of the social media platforms that have banned Donald Trump so far. We have Reddit, who has banned the R Donald Trump um, thread, Twitch, Google and the Apple Store Parlor from their um, their app stores. Facebook has banned Donald Trump um, at least for the next two weeks. Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, all of these platforms, social media companies, we've been asking them to do something about, um, you know, whether it's hate speech, content, Donald Trump, the far right, whatever on their platforms. And they finally did. Um, But they did in the last two weeks of the Trump presidency. They did it right as Democrats were about to take control of Congress and all the committees that are going to oversee them. Um, So do you think this matters? Does it change anything? Like, did it really, was it just business as usual or, or what were, what were your guys' reactions to what you thought this, this meant? Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think to quote one of my favorite Jojo songs, it felt like too little too late, but more importantly, I feel like it definitely highlighted the power ecosystem that we're in with a lot of these giant like platforms that, you know, on the one hand, I I think it's important to make sure we're limiting the ability of the far right to like organize and propagate um, and recruit. But at the same time, it totally makes me think about the fact that like the decision whether or not to do that is is so centralized around like one or two people. Um, and that gives me the heebie-jeebies, but yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that while the decision to kick Donald Trump off of these more mainstream platforms I don't think it actually got rid of anything in fact I think it's sort of long longer term could exacerbate a lot of the issues that we saw that led up to the capital storming um, and the attempted coup so even though Twitter Facebook and a lot of these big name tech companies banned him um, and banned sort of like the leadership which I think obviously having a leader like Donald Trump to organize um, a lot of these extremists was critical to the success of their operations. I also think that because all of these extremists are now going to Telegram or Signal and all of these more encrypted platforms, it's not really going to solve the issue. It it might make it harder. And I think this conversation about regulation 
um, in order to get rid of all of this extremist coordination, um, it could get a lot harder. And I think that is a bit concerning to me. I don't know whether um, this will make the Democrats look more favorably on tech companies because it seems like the <laughs> yeah. Biden-Harris administration is already pretty soft towards them. Um, so any big legislation out of Congress that seems to be really critical of them might not get passed or get approval from Biden. But um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see like what ends up happening. Yeah, for me, it really felt like just like the opposite side of the same coin that we've been talking about the whole time, which is like exactly as both of you said, which is like these big tech platforms have a ton of power what they choose in a certain sense is sort of irrelevant. They've been choosing not to kick off this content for a while, and now they've chosen to kick it off. The problem is still that like somebody like Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg or whoever themselves have the power to decide that, which just seems um, like regardless of whether you agree with the decision, the fact that they have that deciding power seems pretty like troubling to me. I also agree with you, Kira, like, Biden admin doesn't seem like it's going to be particularly tough on tech in some ways this might make it easier for them to like continue this narrative of like oh well like the tech platforms did something so like we don't need to be that tough as as we go into a, a Biden admin but we'll see we'll see I mean it's 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 hard to know something that this makes me think about something you said was just sort of like the fact that this moment of making that decision um is crucial, of course, but it definitely makes me think about the fact that people have been getting deplatformed for a very long time. And like different groups of people have been getting deplatformed for a very long time. And I don't know, it, it feels like there's a lot of information and a lot of like strong opinion and a lot of pressure to like have like the right thing to say on this. And this is one of those issues where I am very much trying my best to like put an ear to the ground and, and see like which as we talked about like the last time which community groups have been getting like impacted by this kind of thing for a while like I think that's so true and like that's one of the things that I was thinking about with this too which is like these are American companies we're talking about American politics which have been pretty extraordinary um like in the past couple of years sure but like the fact that like Donald Trump was deplatformed because there's like this huge like Western media attention, whereas like someone like Maria Reza in the Philippines has been like talking about like Duherte and like how like or even like you know the UN literally found that like Facebook facilitated genocide in Myanmar, um, and yet we're not having the same sort of like attention to like what is Facebook doing to like deplatform like global leaders and is that even like appropriate for an American company with basically absolutely and in, in, in many cases like not even basic language understanding of these communities let alone any of the like complex contexts of their politics or whatever um so like what are like the larger kind of structural implications of like this platform having that and then exactly as you said Malika too like not just thinking that in a global sense but then like a, in a in a more community sense so like we talked about this last time with um like Visa and MasterCard not processing payments for Pornhub which like then affected sex workers you're we like that's a community that we don't really talk about and yet the same power that these like platforms whether they be like Stripe which actually stopped processing um Trump campaign donations, they Stripe processes online um, payments and they, they decided to stop processing Trump campaign donations. Um, 
you know, so these like digital platforms that have immense amount of power over all sorts of types of, of communities and people. Um, and, and what does that mean when that's so consolidated? Yeah, I 100% agree um, with what you were saying, Alina, and wanted to, to sort of jump off as well and ask if Trump had genuinely won the election, if by some bizarre different circumstances, he won the majority of the vote, would they have been as willing to have canceled him or to have uh, knocked him off of their platforms if more people liked him? And is it that these tech companies are just sort of following the popular wave or whoever sort of controls the, the tone or the rhetoric of what is acceptable and what is not? And so I'm thinking about like Vietnam, for example, where Facebook is basically a subordinate to whatever the government wants because the government has the power to just take Facebook off completely from the whole country. Um, and there's a ton of Vietnamese that are Facebook users, and that would be a huge hit to Facebook's presence, not only in the country, but also just like number of users in general. And so if there were different circumstances, is Facebook really making a call because it is the right thing to do, or are they making the call because it is the popular thing to do? Um, and also just kind of thinking on that, um, a lot of the calculation for whether Dorsey was going to even cut Trump from the Twitter, obviously he's thinking about these about the business model of, of these companies too. And if he thought that the business model would be, would be wrecked based on his decision, I think he would not have been as willing to do that. And so I think, of course, businesses should be flexible to the times, but it's just a little bit confusing to me and concerning to me about who is really making the calls on these, um, on these decisions. I think that brings up something that I want to emphasize should like underline a lot of the conversations on this, which is a drive towards external accountability mechanisms, which I think we've all been like alluding towards. Um, but also just the importance of remembering that at the end of the day, like one of the main points of this particular manifestation of, of violence has been specifically white supremacy and racism and fascism. And those things should be at the center of any purported solution as opposed to like a company's profit motive of like what they can do without getting backlash. Um, and so I, I tend to be pretty skeptical of efforts that, that do not center, you know, a, a clear condemnation of fascism and white supremacy um, when, when talking about these things. And again, like thinking about the fact that there have been people talking about the like the need for this kind of external accountability for a very very long time yeah and it strikes me too that like the the, the I mean there I think I think there's two things two things going on here one is that like these the, the platforms I think are quite happy when the conversation is around like deplatforming, like Donald Trump on or off like that is a very yes or no kind of question but the like wider systemic power of like algorithmic reach which these like platforms make every single day um seems to me like the really like intractable entrenched problem that that we're not really talking about and and related to that it's like the 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 not just the business model but the actual model of how the sites these like social media sites are designed is designed around central control. So like what you see on your news feed or like what you see on your Twitter feed is like organized by a like centrally controlled algorithm that like curates it. Um, and they don't tell you really how, 
you can kind of, I mean, there's, there's analyses of it, but like you have no control over like what you see first on your newsfeed. And so I was thinking about this a lot, like then when it comes to something like Donald, Donald Trump, which is that like in the real world, uh, like quote unquote, like in the not cyberspace, like there are different ways for communities to address something like white supremacy or fascism or, or racism within their communities in which it is actually the community that is empowered to tackle these things rather than sort of like a fiat from on high being like white supremacy is bad now move which is like kind of like what what we're asking these platforms to do which is to like have a fiat from fiat from on high and so to me it strikes me that in addition to the business models that we need to tackle we also need to tackle like how we like we've come to think of feeds like curated algorithmically curated feeds as like the way it has to be and like the way social media should be organized. But it also strikes me that we should think about like designs that allow more community, like community based or like something based where it's like actually like we as users have the power to like shape and take on bad elements in our, um, in our like digital spaces in the same way that like you have more freedom to do that in the like non-cyber real world. I just want to really strongly echo the like the last point you made about being able to just imagine different ways of organizing our like cyber space communities. Um, I, I really think that's important and I am hopeful to to like learn more and see more in that space. What, one of the things that I really don't like about the content moderation debate is that it tends to focus on um, like information, um, what information can be spread and like what can poison the public sphere. And it, is, and it focuses on things like newsfeed, which is about like, like content, like, oh no, like such and such posted like an anti-vax article or, or something about like this and this, um, and the argument being like, this will convince people of conspiracy theories and that will like poison the debate. There in, um, David Rensman wrote um, How Democracy Ends and he has a very interesting point in there they, on the chapter on conspiracies. And I'm trying to find the quote here, which says that um, there is a study on the prevalence of political conspiracy theories in the US over the past century. And that the overall proportion of those who believe that democracy is in the grip of secret organizations is relatively stable at any given moment. And it's likely that somewhere between a quarter and a third of Americans are willing to sign up to conspiracy theories of this time. Which I thought was so interesting because like it frames this conversation away from like, um, like, oh no, so many more people are believing in conspiracies now. This is so unusual. How do we, how do we eradicate conspiracy theories? And it shifts it to a like, actually conspiracy theories or like belief in something is always prevalent. What is making it more salient in this political context? And in that sense, I, I think the platforms, one of the very like understudied part of these platforms is their ability to connect people who may be like, spread out across like diverse geographic regions. So like Facebook's lookalike tool, Ryan Mack has done great reporting on this. Like Facebook's lookalike tool will like suggest if you, if it notices like, oh, you seem to believe in conspiracy theories. Could I suggest a QAnon group for you to join? 
And all of a sudden these people are like connected with other people and are able to mobilize. So I thought that was something that also came up too with this like attempted coup and the storming of the Capitol is like, these are people who otherwise may not have met each other who might've just been kind of like isolated in their own communities, given the platform and the ability to connect with people and then like mobilize in that way. I'm curious if you think that is specific to the way Facebook, for example, is set up in Twitter, or if you think that is true amongst any platform. So specifically asking, is that same type of mobilization as effective on Telegram and Signal? Um, or is do you think that is like unique to Facebook? And now that there has been the storming of the Capitol and sort of proof that so, sort of like the stamp of approval that like stuff like this can happen successfully. Do you think that it's now too late? Um, was that enough of a push and a validation for these extremist groups that they can now mobilize and feel more empowered to do that effectively? Thinking yeah, about like, like Charlottesville. Yeah. Yeah. Like how do you deconnect people once they've been connected on Facebook? Yeah. It's like an interesting question. I think like the the move from Facebook to Parler to Signal to Telegram is interesting because it does suggest that you like the, it is the ecosystem that is important, not just like one platform. But it does seem to me that like Facebook, because it has such a huge user base, that Facebook is often the like first step point of contact where somebody who might just like be vaguely interested in this gets moved onto a Facebook group. And then on that Facebook group, they make connections. And then on that Facebook group, somebody posts like, oh, this is Parler or like, oh, like join this signal group. And then it moves off of Facebook. Um, so, but it is an interesting question. Like if, if Facebook, so Facebook has been, I mean, it's started deleting um, some of these uh, militia like stop the seal groups and things and so it's interesting it will be interesting to see how that um, like affects their ability to mobilize or if as you say they just moved on to other platforms and the genie is out of the bottle so to speak. Facebook and other platforms that specifically recommend groups I think even like Facebook's own assessment of of their own life of their um, like group recommendations found that like a good chunk of people who ended up finding their way into like right-wing extremist Facebook groups did so because Facebook recommended the group to them. Um, and I, I think that is important in terms of both recognizing that white supremacy exists offline and online, but recognizing that slowing down the ability of groups to mobilize is, is important. Um, and that with new media, or I guess old media now come like very specific ways of, of like mobilizing and network building. And that is important to recognize. So the other significant thing that happened this year that even predated the, the attempted coup um, was that companies started to flag, remove or limit sharing of certain posts. And we saw this, especially in the wake of like COVID conspiracy theories and especially like Black Lives Matter protests. Um, so kind of like broadening it out from, from beyond just like the recent deplatforming um, what, yes, yeah, so what, what were your guys' thoughts on like what happened in this year more generally? W were these genuine attempts? Did they change anything? Um, are these actions going to be significant going forward? I wish we had more transparency around what types of like posts and, and things get labeled and flagged and taken down. I mean, I have my my suspicions based on the fact that like typically it's activists and other marginalized groups that get targeted by by platform policies but i i would like to 
to know, you know, for example, as you mentioned earlier, like how much of the misinformation labeling happened in a very US specific political context versus in other places. Like I, I for one would really like to see more transparency around that. Um, and I think that would be helpful in, in order to understand a little bit better about like how these platforms are interacting with the way that we communicate with each other. What I think is significant about them starting to flag is it was kind of like the initial push to lead to this domino effect, I guess, of, of these companies being more willing to flag content of leaders. But as Malika said, like, it's unclear what the policy was prior to this. And maybe like if they were just less willing to do it for certain people than others. And like maybe they gave reasons for that. Like, oh, well, Donald Trump is a public figure. This is important for history's sake or like understanding politics. But I think that's a bit BS. Um, But what I think is important to know is, and there's this really good daily um, podcast about this, but Twitter's response and sort of the ideology of Twitter, while definitely has its flaws, um, was very different than Zuckerberg and Facebook's response and how reluctant Zuckerberg was to initially even take down the comment um, when the looting starts, the shooting starts as an incitement of violence, I think is pretty reflective of the company's um, philosophy when it comes to to this and maybe even tolerance. Um, I don't want to say that they're tolerant, but actually I think they are. I'm thinking also about like Myanmar and how they were just so incapable of taking down a lot of this rhetoric. Um, It's this idea of prevention versus reaction to a lot of these posts. And is it enough for them to to react? And this labeling of content is a reaction. It's not a prevention. Um, And it's harder to to prevent, but I think at this point they should have enough data um, to be able to create more effective policies that are less lenient and less less tolerant of a lot of the escalation of extremism that I think can can manifest on these accounts based on um, accounts that are followed or, or different metrics that I know is, is already collected on these sites. Yeah, it strikes me too that like, kind of, it sounds like what you're talking about, Kira, is like, how do you add friction to something that we expect is immediate? Like you have a thought, you just post it, it's out there. Um, one of the things that strikes me about it, about, well, I have a couple of things that strike me. One is that like, it's very interesting and I'm very critical of like Facebook's reaction to things like content moderation is like we can we can program something to deal with that like we can get an algorithm to curate it like don't worry eventually the AI will be good enough that like exactly as you said Gira actually it will be like preventative and prevented just like wait a second and then it turns out that actually they're hiring legions and legions of content moderators to do this work and again, it like for me, it really like comes back to like, okay, how do we just like reframe this completely? Like rather than being like Mark Zuckerberg, can like Facebook, your platform do something? Like again, how do we center this around like communities? And so again, one of the things that strikes me is like the Wikipedia model, which is definitely not perfect by any accounts. There's a lot of, it's actually Wikipedia's 20th birthday this week. 
Um, there's a lot of uh, literature on like how Wikipedia is often a very male dominated space um, and the same kind of like structures of, of power exist. But I think there is something to be said about the fact that like Wiki Wikipedia allows the communities themselves to talk about these issues about like how things are presented and it's constantly kind of changing so you don't get these like one-off rulings like nope that's gone it's always gone that's you know this like kind of static ruling like the community talks about and creates meaning um and again it's not perfect but like how do how do we think about something like that on social media where like the question isn't like okay yes or no facebook should you delete this it's like how do we empower the community to to think about like, okay, how do we react to this? It, it really does sometimes feel like trying to grapple with like the existing infrastructure of like Twitter and Facebook in the way that they're like built and the way that power is not distributed for those platforms. Trying to configure any kind of solution with that as your starting point feels so just like, doomed from the beginning sometimes yeah. it's like you know like there's a wildfire and you're trying to like put it out with a little like pipette <laughs> of water and I'm like I I really again want to just like echo your call for like a more transformative vision around not just thinking about like oh well do we like should we moderate this or not but thinking about okay like what kind of internet ecosystem do we want to build like what values do we want at the center of it and how do we build something that's less like less reactive but because it is proactively working towards this shared vision like a specifically like an anti-fascist like abolitionist vision towards like online justice and offline justice no but exactly what you mean Malika. like we are having the conversation on their terms and i think actually people would be surprised i think the tech companies are very happy with where the content moderation debate is because it's like oh, what should we make mark zuckerberg do it's not like how do we like transform like our very understanding of like what social media air quotes and like what the internet means. So I think exactly. Like technological visions of like harm reduction or, or at least when we try to center harm reduction in the ways that we like use and design and think about technology, like remembering that we should always be thinking from the perspectives or not thinking from the perspectives, but including and, and centering the perspectives of the people who, you know, the tech isn't always designed for and who even in like good intention situations or good intention use cases, like it gets weaponized again. Yeah. And even, even, even something as like basic or like kind of automatic as um, accounts with uh, like personalized accounts with your name on it. So there's a very interesting article about like trans people who change their name and then they're like Facebook, I, I think it was Facebook that like rejected the name change because you're not allowed to change your name or uh, there's some sort of thing like you need to have your legal name technically attached to it. So all these like, um, so it was a very interesting feature on like people who are trans who are like, um, actually I want to change my name. Like I, I wanted to come out to like my social network on Facebook and I was unable to. So like e even something like, like as just like, oh, your name should be on your account can actually be very oppressive in, in certain contexts if we if we don't think about it. So again, it's all about like, how do we, anarchy in an empowering communities is not a panacea because these same like systems, exactly as you brought up Malika, like these same systems of oppression can exist in small communities. Um, but like how, like, you know, how do we, 
how do we have something where like it's a bottom-up approach to tackling injustice rather than a top-down approach to tackling injustice. One of the other things that struck me is that like, we're once again talking about um, American companies' impacts on American um, politicians. So very, really, I mean, a couple of interesting things that happened. One is that like, you know, as the pandemic has gone on, we've been more um, dependent on digital platforms such as Zoom. Um, and Zoom is actually being investigated by the SEC. So we don't think about Zoom as being like a coercive platform. Um, but there's allegations that basically the Chinese government requested Zoom to not um, allow um, users to commemorate the Tiananmen Square uprising and that they complied. So the SEC is actually investigating. Um, same sort of thing with like, these, it's interesting, it's like these these digital infrastructures that we didn't necessarily think about being important have suddenly become important. So like AWS, the cloud computing arm kicking Parler off was arguably like way more important than, I mean, Facebook's content moderation policy because Amazon just was like, you can no longer be hosted. And Amazon is essentially a monopoly. And I think Parler CEO said something like, we can totally find more hosting. We prepared for this, but like, it seems pretty clear that they haven't. Um, I'm just gonna put it out there that I think like Zoom has for a long time been like canceling events for like Palestinian activists. Yeah, um, that was the other one. Which is just, you know, gross. Nevertheless, here we are. Um, it is weird. And it is so interesting. Like I was thinking about this because in a way it almost is like consolidation of space because like if this, Ooh. again, if we were <laughs> a monopoly of space, because like if this was the real world, right? And you were like, I want to host like a, an event of, in Palestinian solidarity, for instance, right? There are so many layers in which there one was choice, but also ways to shut down. So like, for example, like your university could be like, I don't want to host you. And then you would be like, oh, I guess I have to get money. Or like the building could be like, I don't want to host you. But then you could be like, okay, we'll go to another building. Um, you know, so there's, there's all these, like there's different choke points, but they're quite diversified. Whereas like with something like Zoom, if Zoom is like, I don't want to host you, you're like, okay, Skype? like. <laughs> I feel like I am a parrot who just is like communities have been impacted by this for a long time but like it really is true like people in the global south and especially like activists in the global south have been dealing with the consequences of like internet access and internet infrastructure if that's the right word um being used to limit their their possibilities and I like I know that I have to do a lot of learning and reading of like understanding what we can learn from their approaches and their experiences trying to, you know, fight for an internet that serves end users, um, including and especially activists and marginalized groups in a way that, you know, can inform what we're doing on the US side, as opposed to like, in as much as I think the, the current US centric conversation, um, like risks very much being uninformed by like the histories of what's already been going on. I think it's a really good opportunity for people to take a minute and say like, okay, like what can we learn from the expertise of people who have been fighting these fights, doing this research, doing this work, um, 
and using that as an opportunity because as y'all both know like the the human rights issues that we're facing are not you know u.s specific or or new to the u.s i mean like fascism is not a u.s specific thing nor is white supremacy and so in as much as we might use like global knowledge and expertise to to think about our approaches um with one thing i think it's an opportunity to do that for the tech space as well i definitely agree with that and i think it it does kind of go back for me it kind of is a tension of of taking these best practices and seeing how it can be applied to the tech space in the US. And then also brings up this question of should tech companies policies for all countries be the same or how do they differ? Um, And I think, again, this goes back to the question of what are tech companies foreign policy and should they even have one? Um, And and again, I think both of your points of where are the accountability mechanisms for this? Because it's right now, nobody's watching and nobody cares because the conversation it seems not that nobody cares but it seems like in the U.S. the conversation from Congress is very much of how do tech companies impact the U.S. and there are cases where there's pushback based on the impact it has internationally but I think that's an even greater delay than what we're seeing in the U.S. when when there's different investigations into the U.S. into tech companies policies or reactions to events in the U.S. Mm -hmm. those tend to be a bit reactionary but then when you think about Congress's investigation into what tech companies have done abroad there's like no oversight Um, so like thinking about Facebook's role in the Myanmar genocide I mean yeah there now is a conversation about it after (laughs) the genocide um, which and it, just the oversight process, while there were signs during the process that maybe something was happening, it just seemed like the tech companies only started being held accountable months afterwards um, to a, a significant degree. And it doesn't seem like the U.S. Congress really cares what tech companies do abroad um, and what their foreign policy looks like, which, again, it goes back to this question of accountability for me about like there is no accountability and there's especially no accountability for what they do abroad. Yeah, it strikes me too that there's like two sort of fault lines that are that are running through your point, Kira. Like one is that along like global or like nation state lines, which is like Facebook, Twitter, whatever, is an American company. American consumers or like citizens who have power within an American government that could technically take on Facebook are in some way have some influence, but like what influence does like, for example, like a citizen of Myanmar have, particularly someone that's already being like violently oppressed by the state, Um, you know, and Maria Reza, I think, I mean, she's just like an incredible activist. Um, She's a very good example of this. Like she's an incredible journalist in the Philippines who literally like for years prior to Cambridge Analytica was like just ringing the alarm bell was like talking to Facebook was like this is bad and Facebook was like sorry and then the second problem is that these are corporations and not political states and we don't corporations that don't have like obligations tests in the same way that states do and we can try to affect them as consumers we can try to affect them as citizens who lobby our states to change them but um but they're not really accountable to us. 
Um, and it is that that's a problem more generally, you know, we see that in, in tons of different industries from like the fossil fuel industry, not just tech, which is that these companies do horrible things to the earth and to our communities and to like our very like lives and livelihoods where we're literally now in a position where like the earth may become uninhabitable for large swaths of people. And these corporations are like, well, we got very rich. But the thing that strikes me, like, especially with like something like, like the Google union or the alphabet union that happened recently is like, we think of corporations kind of in the same way that we used to think about like states, like, like there are these like Leviathans, like to get very Hobbesian, um, that like can just do whatever and are owned by an individual person. Um, this book called The Corporation, that's basically like, are you working for a sociopath? You may be working for a corporation. Like that's the book jacket thing, which I found very funny, but like they are, they're, they're like what we used to think of like kingdoms as being. Um, and just, and, and, and so like, often the idea I think and the way that like it's framed particularly in the U.S. around like anti-monopoly it's been like okay we have states which we've democratized which are accountable to people more or less let's use the state to break up the corporation or bring it to heel um and that's kind of like what has happened with anti-monopoly like in the past but like my thought is always like maybe we should just democratize the corporation um so maybe we should think about like how do we democratize corporations and i think you see this at like google and facebook where like workers are often very upset by what the companies they work at are doing and in fact were it democratized they might not be having the same policies um and again it's not perfect because people who work there aren't necessarily the people who aren't are being impacted right but like maybe that's another again maybe top down is not the best approach. Maybe there is a bottom up approach to taking on these, these powers. In essence, I'm waiting for the moment where like the tech industry gets raised to the ground and replaced by like worker owned co-ops. I'm not joking. It's the thing. Like I, I do think that looking to examples of like worker ownership and autonomy outside of like the confines of, of big industry is is an important way to think about moving forward and again like building like a technological ecosystem that serves the people that that build it and that use it and also it's amazing that like the alphabet workers union and like the tech workers for tech workers union and all that stuff has been like happening recently maybe yes. this is apropos of nothing but like that has been a small seed of hope that no, and and I thought what was so great about the Alphabet Union was that they included um, contracted workers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Google, much like Facebook and a lot of these tech companies and like the gig economy, have their like core real employees who have like red badges or like whatever the color is. And then they have a bunch of workers who they claim are not actually employees, but contractors, because the, the like... Oh, the contracting and like the just the gig workers and just like it destroy like these people like Uber Uber's business literally is just destroying labor rights and like employee rights and being like look we're not a profitable company but if we didn't have to pay our employees health care we would sort of be kind of almost profitable you're like that. I mean, I know y'all from California probably have thoughts on Prop 22, but just like the the extent to which, and again, this, uh, I really am a caricature of myself, but the extent to which like conversations about gig work and the exploitation that laborers have been facing as like 
employers have more options to basically say like, oh, like as a gig worker, you're not entitled to any rights at work. Um, like those conversations have been happening for a while, but I think like, oh my God, the past yeah. year and like the way that COVID has like exacerbated the precarity that that gig workers face and, and like contracted workers and people who get easily bucketed into like, oh, you're not a real tech worker. Like, um, I mean, Amazon is trying, like Amazon workers are trying to unionize right now. And I think Amazon is literally, as, as will come as a surprise to absolutely nobody. I think Amazon is trying to like pour resources into steering its its workers to basically not unionize. Um, literally surveilling them. I mean, hiring Pinkerton. The Pinkerton story. The Pinkerton How did we get past that? How is that just like a blip on the radar of it just the hell year yeah they literally are hiring i mean they have people they are like do you have a background in intelligence agencies come like spy on like like these workers who get paid 15 dollars an hour to stop them from mobilizing to ask for health care you're like how anyways it is it is heartening though that like in in a strange and twisted way the fact that you're seeing that we're seeing so much effort from companies to stop workers from unionizing, I think is indicative of the power that that kind of like collective mobilization has. And the fact that they're afraid because they know that like Workers United can make the kinds of changes that would threaten like the very fundamentals of the way that they exploit everyone's labor. Um, So this is such a great transition to our next question. This year was the year of COVID-19 of the global pandemic. And some people have said that this has, it has slightly rehabilitated tech's image in part because things like test and trace, things like developing um, like vaccines, um, things like Instacart shopping um, have really like highlighted like the good stuff um, that tech can do. So what do we think? Has this rehabilitated their image? Do we buy this? I do have thoughts on this. So I think that all attempts to use the pandemic as sort of an opportunistic time to jump in and say like, oh, look at look at how tech is helping solve this huge problem. Look at how much we need these like big tech companies to create solutions for our like socio-political and public health related problems. Like there's no way we could solve this without the help of this company or this company. I think that's evil. And I really hope that we are extremely mindful of the ways that like private tech companies have embedded themselves in our solution mechanisms um, for dealing with COVID. Um, and I'm speaking not just to like test and trace, obviously I think that is a more nuanced conversation that I, that I hope we get to, but more specifically just with the like the contracting and Alina I know we talked about this last time about how public private partnerships are used sometimes to just justify the embedding of certain companies and their profit motives in the way that we administer public services um, I think that is scary and I hope that the pandemic isn't a crisis moment that's used to to justify long-term impacts like that um, Test and trace, I think, has, like, there, there is a lot of conversation to be had about that and the way that eventually, like, the Google and Apple, um, like, exposure notification system became dominant in different parts of the world and how different initiatives 
relied on different like strategies to to test and trace that had like very different implications for privacy and surveillance. Um, and I'm not just in the US, I know like in a lot of other places there's been like several different phases of using different apps for that. Um, and I think this is, um, Malika was talking a bit about this too, but it's the tension between what tech can honestly get away with. Um, and this is, I guess, a, a little bit of a deviant from the question, but because of COVID, um, it's not only, there's been a focus on the privacy in terms of the app development aspect, but then also the infringements on privacy because this is a public health necessity. Um, and it's been really interesting for me to see how that relationship between, or yeah, how the conversation of privacy and what people are willing to give up given the circumstances has differed so widely and has been different between tech companies and different governments. Um, so specifically thinking about like in Asia, I think there's more of a willingness for people to give up some of their privacy rights in favor of what is better for the public good. Um, if of course, like within reason. So I think for, um, I think in Singapore, their contact tracing app was supposed to be the most secure in, in Asia and especially Southeast Asia. Um, but recently it came out that their criminal procedure code can apply to data that is collected through the app which was something a few months ago, the government has assured people, oh, this only the data collected in this app will be used for COVID-19 related instances. And now it can be used for murder trials and for things like that. And there's a debate about whether that was always the case, but I think the biggest rift there is what, like now that people have sort of bought into this idea that, that they have to use the app for the public good but now can they trust their government to, to hold their promises when there's no accountability standards and now everybody's already bought into the system? Yeah, Kira, I think it's such a good point. And it, it reminds me of like, it's like the problem of like what to do when these things become entrenched. So I was thinking a lot actually about the internet of things as you were talking, you know, these companies are like, oh, get like a nest cam. Um, you know, these, these, these things are like, you know, um, Amazon Alexis has a lot where it's like, okay, like have your lights um, attached to Alexa. We're going to collect data on that. Um, have your fridge attached to the internet. You can like order groceries. And these things are like really convenient, but two things. One, it start, you know, they just start collecting massive amounts of data on you to the point of like, when do you turn the heating up or down? Uh, when do you turn lights on? Which they're not going to let go of. And then two, like the fragility of these like incredibly integrated um, systems. You mentioning the like Alexa, was it Alexa that you mentioned? Um, reminded me that today I was on the cursed website itself, twitter.com. Um, <laughs> and Sasha Costanza Chalk, who is just an incredible human and such a smart, like necessary visionary voice in like design and tech. Um, proposed a Twitter bot that changed smart as an adjective to describe like uh, devices into snitch, which resulted in the creation of a bot that was like, oh, like get this new like snitch watch or like a, like build a snitch home or like here's a snitch city. And that was really one of the more beautiful things that I've seen in a long time. And I wow. 
Now that's a public service. That is a public service. But relatedly, I think um, the example of Singapore is interesting and I, I don't know a ton about it, but even thinking to like a US context, like the number of times that we have in moments of crisis, and this isn't new, but moments of crisis giving way to people saying, oh, well, we'll give up our privacy or certain rights in order for protections that we deem necessary or useful from the state or in order to serve what we think is like the public good. Um, and the ways that those things, when they do get embedded, Alina, like I think you point out really well, can be really scary. Um, but again, like all the people who work at the intersections of, of tech and society and race specifically, like at the very beginning, we're like, don't collect this information because it will get passed on to the state, to the cops and to people who will like target marginalized people. Um, and so again, just sort of like a people who were, people were saying this and it was just a matter of like where the solutions like came from and who was listened to and who wasn't listened to. I think what it's like, when the state wants to collect that information about you, we have like a very good automatic framework for like what the harm can be, which is like, for example, like racist policing, um, like state violence. Um, and then when we think like, oh, Amazon's gonna collect this information about us, we're like, ah, it's just Jeff Bezos, you know, like it, it's sort of like harder to like visualize that harm. But like we have seen, I mean, we they talked about this in Congress, right? Like Facebook collects data on like your race, for instance. And then you can use Facebook's tools to like only advertise to certain races. And that was happening where like, you know, and we saw this with redlining districts in the past. Again, this is nothing new. This is just using tech to do the same policies where it's like, oh, oh. Um, my Facebook data says that you're black. Actually, you can't have this loan for this house in this neighborhood. Um, and, um, you know, this is the same. It's not just this, like the state that can have this injustice or systemic oppression embedded in it that is enabled and exacerbated by data, like private corporations do it too. Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, like, can you stop letting Amazon Ring establish partnerships with police departments? Just, you know. You don't have to say you got the idea from here. It's fine. <laughs> so this has been such a great conversation. I'm so glad to have uh, processed the year that was 2020 with you all. Um, so looking back um, on, on this year, um, I wanted to ask what has your guys' favorite tech story been? Favorite is in air quotes um, and or uh, a favorite tech book of 2020. Okay, so I just saw this tweet um, from Selena Gomez, or it references Selena Gomez basically emailing um, Sheryl Sandberg in September 2020 about different militia groups that she found on Facebook that were basically cultivating um, extremist rhetoric and organizing um, for violent acts and white supremacy and different things like White Lives Matter and um, things like that. And Facebook kind of didn't respond in a great way, but I just think it's, you know, did it's- they, Did it's, they email back Selena Gomez? Like did Sheryl Sandberg reply to Selena? It is unclear to me. I Maybe, maybe, but like they didn't, I don't think they did much about it, but I just think it's hilarious that we have Selena <laughs> Gomez out here just like trying to search up like, white supremacist groups because Facebook doesn't have its shit together to like do it themselves. Also just like how much of a powerhouse uh, Selena is. So shouts to her. So my favorite tech story is 
from 2021, but because time over the past like year or so has been a construct, I don't think it really matters. It's, a long um, it's, a long. it's been it's been a decade of a week, so like um, I really have enjoyed seeing people get on the signal train um, and like migrate to using signal for one reason or the other. Um, that's just been very heartening. Um, and then in terms of a favorite tech book, this wasn't released in 2020, but I finally started reading Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology. Um, yeah, and amazing. Of course, she is brilliant and perfect. So my favorite tech story, and I want to like highlight favorite as in, I can't believe this has happened and not that I condone this. Um, but Elon Musk uh, became the richest man in the world, um, jumping over Jeff Bezos. Ironically, because of the state. So like Tesla got subsidies because it is a like green, like it's electric cars, was not profitable for years and years and received subsidies from the United States government. And now um, Tesla is immensely profitable because the Democrats coming to power means it's more likely a Green New Deal will be passed, which means like Tesla stock prices have soared so Elon Mann is now the richest man in the world because of the U.S. government. Um, and he's now the richest man in the world. So everybody wants to interview him. So uh, Bloomberg uh, did an, an article with him in which kind of they asked him what his, his plans were. And he said that he would like to colonize Mars. And he said, if people can't afford to buy a ticket on the rocket ship to get to Mars that he would offer loans in which you could work off with employment once you arrived at Mars. And it was pointed out that we've seen this film before and it was called Indentured Servitude. So that was my favorite tech story. But my favorite books, so it's actually a series and I just wrote a review of it and I'll post the link. Um, to the review. Um, so FSG and uh, the tech magazine Logic teamed up to produce four books. Blockchain Chicken Farm, which is about the technological changes sweeping rural China. Um, the other one is the subprime um, attention crisis, which basically argues that like digital advertising is has been deliberately inflated. It's actually not that effective. It's a bubble waiting to burst. And when it does burst, everything that all that tech money was subsidizing is going to disappear overnight. Um, and then the third one is my personal favorite called What Tech Calls Thinking um, by Adrian Dobb, who's a professor of comparative literature at Stanford University, who um, just kind of goes through, like it's called the intellectual bedrock. He just, of Silicon Valley, just like goes through the thinkers that like tech cites and what they say and why it makes absolutely no sense. Thank you so much again to Kira and Malika for coming on this episode of The Anti-Dystopians. All of the articles or books mentioned in this podcast will be available on our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can also subscribe to the email newsletter that accompanies each episode by using the link below. To avoid descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.